Continuing on with our sermon series in Isaiah, there will be a Sunday coming very soon where I will not say that, but it's not this Sunday. So we're continuing on with Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 55. We looked two weeks ago at chapter 53, which spoke of God's great redemption. We looked last week uh, of chapter 54 of God's great renewal, of what he did to open up the, 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 the basically the, the room for everybody to come. Isaiah, we spoke about, uh, simply was opening up the preaching of the word, the gospel to all nations. And so chapter 55 today speaks of God's God's great uh, invitation. Uh, we're going to look really at uh, uh, five verses from Isaiah 55, verse 6 to 11. Just to give you the context, uh, the first five verses is really an invitation uh, to a feast that God is inviting the people to come and feast, to come and eat all those who are hungry. But it's really these five verses uh, from 6 to 11 that I would like to focus on uh, this morning. It says this, Seek the Lord while they may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to be empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which it was sent. So uh, this chapter is simply then an invitation to the people because they have forsaken God and he invites them uh, to come back uh, because of his righteousness, because of what he has done. And so these people are invited by God uh, to return to him and be restored in fellowship and blessing. It's simply God's desire that he would have a relationship uh, with people. It's clear here from Isaiah, even though the people have uh, messed up all the way through, uh, they face the consequences of their actions, uh, God is still calling them back to him. Uh, and it's so much more true in a sense in the New Testament setting of today is that God desires a relationship with people. The purpose of the church is to tell people the message of Jesus Christ, to invite people uh, to come and hear that message and how it will change their life. It's an invitation and this invitation is here and it simply says this, it says seek the Lord while they may be found call on him while he is near simply this while there is still the promise of his response there was a sense of urgency to this. There was a sense that, that the people have got to do it now. That God has simply said to them, here is the, the invitation. There was, you know, if you get invited to something, I promised myself this morning that a couple of years ago, I got invited to Buckingham Palace. I may have mentioned it once or twice. But I thought to myself, I'm not going to mention it this morning because you're all sick of it. So we mentioned it. But if you get an invitation, there is a date and a time on it. And there is a time to respond. And there was no point responding after the event. And you see, the difficulty sometimes with what God does when he challenges people to seek him, to call on him, uh, that, that is the same truth there. There is a time limit on it. There is a response uh, to accepting the invitation. 
And so there was a clear warning that the opportunity to come in from the cold, in a sense, and in the first five verses, it talks about a great banquet uh, that there will be, that God will hold uh, for these people. And that will not last forever. Uh, and, you know, there will come a time when that invitation will be null and void. Paul touches on it in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 when he says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. The truth of it is this, and maybe it's unpopular to say this today, but God will not always extend his gracious hand to people to enter the feast. There, there is a time. There is a time limit on it. There, it will become null and void. It will be uh, outside of the terms and conditions that, that God has laid down, in a sense, is the modern way of looking at it. And so for these people here, uh, that truth is so that they're to seek and call upon God. You see, there will come an end. And the end will either be at the sinner's death or the second coming of Christ. And either way, it will be too late. So the theology that's crept in to different churches is almost like a second chance gospel that almost when people realise that everything God has said is true and oh, it gives them another chance. No, there isn't. There is a one-time chance. It's seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. The invitation is there uh, now for everybody to come and accept that invitation. Now is the time. And he gives this invitation to the people here that simply to seek him. Now, whether seeking him because he's lost, an almost impression sometimes is given that God is playing some sort of hide and seek game with his people, that we're suddenly playing this game and, and oh, I'm searching for God, you know. And, and in a sense, that's not the, the, the meaning behind what Isaiah is saying here when it comes uh, to seek if we look at what the word seek means it simply means it's a committed persistent determination to discover the Lord's presence and fellowship in a deeper way the people have to recognize the urgency and they have to recognize the urgency take their responsibility for it you know A.W. Tozer says this and it's still so very true you can have as much of God as you want uh, and that really responsibility then falls on us when we say, well, well, how much of God do we want working in our life, guiding our decisions, showing us the way that we have to live? Uh, and so there were four things uh, that are challenged to do in these early verses that we read here, to seek, to call, to forsake and return. Because there is a reality for these people that there must be a repentance of sin before a return to God. You see, forsaking and returning are the two sides of true repentance. Simply turning from something and turning to something. And, and there can be no other alternative to that in our walk with God. It says the things that we must give up uh, and the things that we must take up. And it's clear here that it's giving that, that decision, that choice to the people that they're simply, hey, you've got to forsake and return to God. There's that, that giving up, that turning away from your way and turning towards God's way. And so for them to receive that full fellowship and blessing, there simply has to be that restoration that God desires. And it's God that restores and he does that here. And Isaiah gives us the two problems. When he tells us this, he says, that he says in verse seven, when he says there were two problems, the first one is our ways. 
uh, which is simply the, the actions that the people committed, the things that they did wrong in the physical. That's one of the problems. The second problem, he gives us this, he says it's our thoughts. And, and it simply, he, he says it's our unrighteousness may be demonstrated by our thoughts. You know, the truth of it is none of us know what either one of us are thinking. It says we, we can see what people do and we don't know what each one is, is thinking. That, that's actually a good thing, you know that, don't you? You know, when you're at home or when you're with somebody and, you know, you're thinking, I, I don't know what they're thinking, that's actually a good thing. You know, some of the thoughts that we have had throughout this week, that driver that cuts us up in the road, just steers in front of us and the words don't come out of our mouth but we think it in our head, we think it in our minds. Let's not pretend we don't, we do. You're in church. Those other things that happen, and it's our mind often. And, and Isaiah gives the problem here. He says it's not just the way that you're living, the choices that you're making, by the sins that you're committing. He says it's your unrighteous thoughts as well. So thought life is so hard uh, to get in line with what, the way God wants it. You know, Paul understood this when he wrote in Romans 12 verse 2. Because the battleground for a righteous walk with God is often found in our minds. That's why Paul writes these words in Romans 12 verse 2. Which says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, pleasing and perfect will. There is a battleground in the mind. In a modern context in 2020 is the difficulties and the challenges there are with mental health. Uh, and the Bible was already speaking about it thousands of years ago. Why? Because our mental health determines what we think. It, it determines the things that we say. It determines the things we do. It determines how we feel about other people. All of this stuff is there in the mind to begin with. And yet the Bible gives it thousands of years ago these thoughts Paul writing to the church in Romans, Romans said, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, he says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That God not only wants an obedience in our actions and the way that we are living, but also the way that we are thinking as well. And he traces that back to the people here before they go on this journey out of exile, slavery and captivity by saying, don't just change the way that you're living, change the way that you're thinking as well. Change exactly what you are thinking about and God transforms the whole person who seeks him. Minds and hearts can be renewed and transformed which leads to our ways and thoughts conforming to his. Romans 8:29 gives us the aim what God wants to do, conform to the image of his son. Christ came from heaven to earth so we can have our thoughts and ways transformed to be more like God's thoughts and ways. That he's almost saying it's okay forsaking the way you're living, taking up the way that God wants you to live, even giving out true repentance, but you've got to let God transform your mind. You've got to let him transform the way you think, the thought life. And it tells us this. He says this in Isaiah as he moves on. He says, his thoughts are not your thoughts. His ways are not your ways. It's simply this. God doesn't think the way we do, which is good. You see, because we are made in the image of the Father, 
conformed to the likeness of the Son, transformed by the work of the Spirit. It means we can relate to God's thoughts, but we cannot master them. What I mean by that is this. He says, all those things happen. It does not make us equal with God. He says, the idea that people turn around and say, I understand the way God thinks. No, you don't. He says, let's think about this. The God who created the heavens and the earth and the earth, we get a small revelation of the way God thinks. We had a small revelation of what God's plan is and intention is. He says, we don't understand. We cannot master them. He says, we can relate to God's thoughts. It's why we are here this morning. And see, we get into trouble when we expect that God should act the way we do. We see in part what he sees in whole, that he looks and sees the complete picture, the whole journey. He says, we only see a small part of that. That there gives us some comfort this morning when we are going through difficult situations, hard times and trials, because it's only a small part of the picture and not the whole picture, because God has a plan and God is in control. You see, Isaiah tells us the difference between God's thoughts and ways and ours. Simply says, this as high as the heavens is above the earth. Well, how far is that? How do we measure that? We don't know where the heavens are. I assume Isaiah is looking up one night and he's looking at the stars. And he thinks, he says, that would, be a right, that, that, that would be a good illustration of the furthest thing away. You know, I'm interested in, 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 in space and all of those things. Out and, you know, watching something on the Disney Channel at the moment, the right stuff about the first astronauts going into space and how far we have traveled in space. And I love all that stuff about us landing on Mars and all things like that. And I think because it just proves God. It just proves the evidence of God. But, you know, at this point, we haven't, idea how far some of this stuff is away at that point Isaiah just looks up and sees a bright light in the sky and he says you know what as far as that is for me that's God's thoughts and ours that's a difference that's incredible says it's incomparable the idea that I could measure my thoughts against what God is thinking he is both transcendent as we've shared before but imminent as he actively controls the events of the daily lives of seven billion people skillfully orchestrating their free decisions into his eternal plan. And he never gets stressed out. He never gets busy. You know, it's like the idea when us men have to multitask, which means when we have to do more than one thing at once, it says we get lost and that God is running the universe, seven billion people. Uh, and he's, he's, he's interwoving these free decisions that people make into their eternal plan. Somebody come up here and try and explain that to me because you can't. He says, so you just can't because that's the way his thoughts and ways are higher than ours. See, Spurgeon said this, he said, the difference and distance between God and man is revealed not to discourage us from seeking him, but to keep us humble as we seek him. There's no equality there. How are you, God, my best mate today? He says, that's not the language that we use. Creator of the heavens and the earth, beyond the, all that we can imagine or understand, yet imminent in our heart that he inter is interested in every aspect of our lives. That's the God that he's speaking about. You see, but Isaiah moves on in this chapter because he, he tells us this, really, that we've received some revelation from God, of God, through the word of God. 
You see, God does not speak in unfathomable mysteries just to blow our minds or confuse us or leave things up to any possible interpretation. When God speaks through the word, he speaks to accomplish a purpose. He says this in at the end of Isaiah 55, and he uses the illustration of the rain and the snow that comes down from heaven and does not return until they've served their purpose on earth. The rain is a heavenly gift coming down from the heavens and we compare it to the word of God. It's designed for effectiveness. It says it doesn't return empty. So the word of the Lord doesn't return void. That every time the word of God is preached or spoken, brought up in conversation, read in your devotions, sent us an encouraging text message, whatever way you do with the word of God, it always serves a purpose. How do we know that? Because the word of God tells us that. The word of God proves the word of God is designed for effectiveness. It then does a second thing which says it produces transformation. The rain and the snow doesn't just fall just to make our days miserable. Just means that we can't go out anywhere. We can't go out anywhere at the moment anyway. Doesn't matter what the weather is, but it doesn't just fall just to ruin our day. It says that it waters the ground and it makes it burden and flourish and blossom. But then it tells us this in it, that it brings life, seed, and it brings nourishment, bread, and as I use this example of the rain and the snow coming down from heaven, and he uses it and he compares it to the word of God and what God does with his word, all of those things. Why? Because God's word is supernatural in origin, effective in mission, and clear in purpose. I love that thought that, that simply this, that the word through the power of the spirit makes that circular trip to us from God and then back to God so when Paul says in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory forever amen so when God speaks his words always have purpose these words always accomplish their intended purpose the word of God is not only powerful but purposeful you know what the enemy tries to do he tries to get us not to read the word of God he tries to find an alternative to the word of God. And the alternative often, even within uh, our Christian lives, even within churches, is maybe to read a book about the word of God or listen to a sermon about the word of God or maybe in leadership circles, we read a leadership book about leadership that we can apply to running church. All of these things go on. He says, and all that, that's all the enemy wants to do. A word of God is effective on its own. It has power on its own. It has purpose on its own. It's not only powerful, but purposeful. Because it tells us in this passage that it shall prosper in the purpose God has for it. It is rich and full of life and it always brings forth fruit. There is no substitute for it, no alternative. And for those of us who preach the word, we must understand this. That God's word must always be prepared well, presented well, and preached well because there is no higher privilege than preaching the word of God. If you ask me what is the most important time of my week, it's this, it's this, not because all oh, look at him a preacher and he preaches, it's not that. We are sharing God's word and hopefully in the stumbling words that flow out of my mouth three times on a Sunday, 
there will hopefully be something of the Holy Spirit that attaches himself to those words and he speaks to the hearts of people and he gives them a nourishment and an encouragement and he gives them something they need for the week ahead. Not because I'm anything special. I, I'm just uh, the person that God uses. Just like you're the person that God uses. But we must, we must prepare it well and we must present it well and we must preach it well. And so for us, we don't ignore it or dilute it or obscure God's word. We simply present the word as it is. It's powerful enough on its own. It says we don't need to look and say, well, we must do this with it. Listen, I've been guilty of that in the past. That we thought if we just do this, maybe it'll make more sense to people. Listen, God uses his word. There is a purpose in it and a power behind it. So I don't have to present alternatives or the latest leadership lessons from the business world or other things that come along that are helpful, but they're not essential. The word of God stands on its own. It says God releases it from heaven like rain and snow. It achieves a purpose and it returns to him. That's how powerful and effective the word is. And you see, when we come to preaching and whenever you start out in preaching, you wonder, well, you know, when I preach, am, am I any good? And it'll be a life any preacher says to you, they don't think like that. And when you start out preaching, you think, well, the first thing is you want people to listen to you. That's always a good thing when you're preaching. Uh, and you want God to use you. And often you stand at the door, and I probably don't do this now because I probably don't care anymore, but I did care at the beginning. You would want to know what people thought. And I can remember preaching some terrible sermons. Some of you have heard them. And I stood at the door thinking, he says, oh, that was awful. I wish I could just go home. Why do you have to shake hands with people? You don't have to shake hands with people anymore. It's great. But you don't have to stand at the door, shake hands with people. And, and on the worst sermons I preached, there would always be people that really spoke to me this morning. Really spoke to me. And you know what I realized at that point? Now hold on to it today. It's not about me. It's about him has to be about him not about how well I thought I did and stuff did I put it all together you know was my English correct was my grammar correct let me tell you Valerie I'll tell you all of that is not correct but something of God uses the word that is preached and it changes people's lives not because of anything special we are is we take this responsibility seriously and so therefore we do this and I've learned this and this is so true I'm not going to let the compliments of my preaching go to my head but I'm not going to let the criticism of it go to my heart either you know we do that because we have a responsibility to preach the word to preach the word so every time I was challenged 18 months ago we did a funeral for a guy who sat in our church who'd taken his own life. And he sat in our church. And I wondered, what did we preach on the night, on the day that he sat in our church? And I thought, because I, I, as far as away, hadn't made any decision. And not only that, but he had ended his life. And I thought, what did we preach that night that made any difference? What did we preach? What did we say? Who was preaching? Who, who, who did we say anything that made a difference to that young man's life that night? And I just thought to myself, when it comes to this preaching, this is when it comes to this, there was no, there was no, there was no higher honour. There was no greater privilege. There was nothing that God would use us to present his word. Not almost like, well, I've, you know, Thursday, you know, I've got to preach on Sunday, www.goodsermons.com, let's see if I can find something. 
study of the word as you seek him and call on him and say, God, what is it you want us to say to the people today? So it makes a difference in their life. So it encourages them in this climate. So when they walk out of church and they say, you know, I was going to give up this Christian life, but after what I've heard this morning through the word of God, I'm not quitting, I'm still going on. He says, what a difference that makes through his word. Because it instructs us, it promises us, it warns us, and it transforms us. But the most important thing about the word of God, God uses it. He uses it. You know, when I, when I read this, and I was going to finish my sermon there, but there's a wee last two-minute thought that I read, and I thought I wanted to share this with you, something that Isaiah said in the passage. You know, he, he, he took this, he said, the most joyful people in the world should be the Christians. Church communities should be demonstrated by joy, who in spite of our sin, weaknesses and mistakes, have experienced his forgiveness. Verse 7 gives us a reason why, for after the seeking, the calling, the forsaking and the returning, God simply says this, he has mercy on his people and he freely pardons them. Or in another version, it says he abundantly pardons them. And I thought to myself, after all of this, where he talks about his thoughts being higher than our thoughts and his ways being higher than our ways and stuff, I thought to myself, what a tremendous promise there that he doesn't just, I forgive you. He says he abundantly pardons them. Word abundant is overflowing, exceedingly above or beyond anything that we deserve. He abundantly pardons them. And I thought about this because I thought, as he uses that distance of the heavens to the earth almost to describe the thoughts and ways, the, 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 the distance between us and God. There's another measurement that's used. Psalm 103 verse 11 and 12 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. This is what God does. Our thoughts and our ways are incomparable. It's as high as the heavens is from the earth. It's immeasurable. What is also immeasurable is how far he has removed our sin and our transgressions from us. It's immeasurable. You cannot measure from the east to the west. That's what it means to be abundantly pardoned, freely pardoned. That same measurement that is used that way is used that way. And that same measurement that's used that way in mind and thought is used this way in the forgiveness of God. I thank God this morning that he has removed my sin, but not just removed it, he has abundantly pardoned me. And I cannot measure how far he has removed that sin from me and you this morning. You see, God will have compassion. He will abundantly pardon. When he forgives, he forgets. He chooses not to remember. And those who have experienced God's love and forgiveness, which is us, we have a powerful, wonderful message to share with a frightened, hurting, discouraged, sinful world. It's almost like it's an invitation, like we said at the beginning. The invitation for us to share this with the people, with everything that's going on in the world and in the climate that we're living in at the moment. He says, those words still stand true today. Those, that action of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, is still true today. His word still has power and purpose today. We gather together as a church today to remember all of those things. Team are gonna come and lead us in a final 
uh, song this morning, as a response to the word this morning, just as we come and pray, Father, we thank you. God, we, we thank you for your word. Father, we don't read your word as we would read a normal book or a newspaper or magazine or something on social media. God, we read your word because it's sent from heaven. It has a purpose. It's effective in our lives. And when it has achieved that purpose, God, it returns to you. It does not return to you void. God, we thank you for the power of your word this morning that changes not only our lives, but our circumstances and our situations. Your word gives us encouragement. It gives us hope. It helps us in our weaknesses. When we have failed, it gives us what we need to do. When we make a mistake, it tells us who we need to draw near. We thank you for the power of your word. And Father, as we come and a final response to the word this morning as we worship you, thank you for sending your son, Jesus. God, the promise of your word is that not just we would be forgiven, oh, we would be abundantly pardoned. The distance that our sin has been removed from us, as far as the east is from the west, it's immeasurable this morning. And we come and we say thank you.